Good morning, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Look at this. It looks really like really formal now. We got we put Zach in the corner. He was causing too much trouble up here. Zach's in the corner. It's good to have you. So now they can hear the announcements. If you hear the recording, remember all of these are recorded. If you miss a week, you can always get the material that's back there. But you can always go online to listen to these. And I know a lot of guys do that if you're traveling. It's great to listen to these real quick while you're driving around. You can listen to Doug. Just a reminder. Make sure you've checked in. I think most folks have checked in. If there's still problems with some names, let us know that, too. Apologize for that. Also, uh, just always get your material back there. Great to have you here. Hope you're enjoying this adventure so far. We're going to get really quickly into this. I'm going to have Doug come up after we start off with the video. Kick the video on. Let's get these glass boxes out of the car and be gone. For God's sake. Not too heavy, is it? Of course it's not too heavy. <laughs> yeah, this is heavy. Try to kill me. I thought about it. Put it down if it's too much. What do you have in here? My mother's china. Put the box down, darling. Your mother never liked me. Oh, she did. Oh. No, ma'am. What is it? What's the matter, darling? What's the matter? Oh, my God. Oh. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Put it under your tongue. What is it? Nitroglycerin. Put it under your tongue. Dear God, don't take him now. You don't want him. He's just an old... Norman. Norman. Maybe we should call a doctor. Oh, yes. Yes, I'll get the telephone. I'll get the telephone. Hello, hello. Dear God. Dear God. How are you feeling, Norman? Pretty good. How are you? How's the angina? What? The pain, damn it. Pretty good as pain goes. The stupid operator. Hello. 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 What's the matter with her? She's slow. How are you feeling now? No, no, no. You're planning to die. Is that what you're up to? While I'm waiting for this moron on the telephone, let me say something to you. No one there, Junior. I'd rather you didn't. Really? Yes. Oh, this stupid, stupid operator. I'm going to have to call the hospital directly. The phone book. I'll get the phone book. Yeah. What is it? Come here. Oh, my God. Yes, Norman. My darling. Ethel. Yes. I'm here, Norman. Ethel. Yes, yes. Yes. Ethel. What is it, Norman? I think I'm feeling all right now. Are you serious? My heart stopped hurting. 
Maybe I'm dead. Oh, I love you so much. Oh, sorry about your mother's china. Why did you strain yourself? You know better. Oh, showing off. Trying to turn you on. Well, you succeeded. No need for you to try that sort of thing again. Good. You know something? This is the first time that I really felt that we were going to die. I've known it all along. When I looked at you, here, on the floor, I could actually see you dead. I could see you. I could see you in your blue suit and white starched shirt and Thomas's funeral at Bradshaw Street. Have a look. Not good, Norman. this on. Good morning. Well, it's great to see you. I want to take us to the next steps in this adventure that we have been on uh, by considering what Ethel and Norman were forced to contemplate there on that video uh, screen, and that is the end, death and the eternity that follows. And I want to begin by looking back at that diagram I introduced to you last week. Do you remember I called that the adventurer's wiring? And we likened an adventurer to an air traffic controller, a guy who's looking at his screen with all the decisions and issues swirling around him like planes at DFW. And I said how he makes those decisions is critical to the quality of his life and how you make those decisions is critical to the quality of your life. So this morning, I want to leap ahead on this diagram to go here to this end to what I would call sacred ground. Sacred ground is a unique place. Uh, it's a place where you're forced to reflect and think deeply about your life. Sacred ground is a place that you sift through uh, the difference between what is important and what is not important. It's a place that uh, you come face to face with what counts in life and what doesn't matter in life. It's a place I'd call sacred ground. Now, sacred ground can be a physical place. Uh, you've all experienced it from time to time. I mean, that whole <clears throat> hole in New York City that once was the the Twin Towers, the Trade Center, that's sacred ground. I mean, people come there, and when they arrive and look into that hole, they immediately begin reflecting. They begin thinking about life. It's a place there in New York that has transformed and clarified American life for us. In fact, it's changed our values as a country, our beliefs, our priorities. Life always becomes more meaningful when you're standing on sacred ground. And several years ago, I went back to Jackson, Mississippi and visited the cemetery where my mom and dad, my grandparents are buried there as well. And I can remember standing there before the graves, those headstones. It was Mays Daly, my grandfather. Uh, there was Sue Daly, my grandmother. Uh, there was Max Howard Daly, my father, and Leela Elizabeth Daly, my mom. And as I stood there and reflected on those tombstones, I could see them all. I could picture them at Christmas time, sitting around the table or at family gatherings. And as I stood there and thought about those times, that place became sacred ground. 
the headstones suddenly began to speak to me. I, I was remembering foolish decisions and worthless things and unwise behaviors by some. And then I also, uh, they spoke of courage and conviction of honor, of belief and unbelief. I, I heard voices that said what was important and what, what wasn't important. And as I stood there looking at those tombstones, I began to reflect, reflect on life. That place became sacred ground. But sacred ground, it doesn't just have to be a physical place. It can actually be a place in your mind. It can be that place in your imagination if, if it's well cultivated and it's uh, constructed with timeless truths and noble thoughts. It can be a place that uh, you visit regularly. You visit and reflect. And it can be a place that can bring balance to your life. It gives life perspective and meaning and encouragement. And most of all, Sacred ground gives life vision. It gives you the big picture on life. In fact, it was psychologist William Sheldon at Columbia University who made this profound statement. He said, deeper and more fundamental than sexuality, deeper than the cravings of social power, deeper still than even the desire for possessions, there is a more generalized and universal craving in every human makeup. It's the craving for knowledge of right direction, for orientation in life. Every one of us, whether you're aware of it or not, craves right orientation in life. Uh, that right, being rightly oriented in life uh, brings meaning to our life. It, it brings fulfillment and deep satisfaction to our life. Uh, for any man to live life well, he's got to be properly oriented to it. Not just a part of life, but all of life. I'm talking about the past, the present, and the future when it comes to life. There's nothing worse than a man who lives life without aim, whose life rises no higher than the immediate. And then stumbling to an end, he's never seriously considered. Right orientation to life requires the cultivation of sacred ground. It includes the past, the present, and the future. Now, last week we explored what I called the adventurous wiring. And you can see that in the chart there. There is the past, the present, and the future. Those are the three components. Starting with the past, that's our birth. And we came into this world as possessors of a unique design, uh, a unique makeup. We are a unique creations, creatures that were created uh, to make a unique contribution. That's our birth. And every one of us has been endowed with those kinds of things. And then in the middle is the pursuits. We move from the past to the present where life starts becoming a little more confusing. And even though um, we have been designed, we get confused about our unique contributions we're to make in the present. And, and that is disturbed by our past wounds, our present problems in life. Maybe it's this lack of convictions that we have or don't have that are swirling around us like that radar screen as the air traffic controller as we're trying to make decisions every day. And you guys are stepping out into that world when you leave here, the confusion of it in the next hour. You'll face that today. And hopefully it's moving us if we make some good decisions toward an end where we 
see this last component here, death and eternity, that will naturally follow. And hopefully something good will happen because of the way I lived in the present according to the way I was created in the past. And so that will be a positive direction a life will take. So you see the three components there. Uh, I mean, our design, that's in the present. Hopefully you know it and you appreciate that and you're using it. And we're going to explore that in great detail in January. And then our pursuits in the present, and hopefully they line up with how we were designed over here in the past. And they are those that design is engaged in the present. And then our end here at this end of the spectrum that last component, our death and eternity. But this is where we don't often go. We don't like contemplating the future, especially when it, we're forced to think about death and eternity. But sometime in the next month or two, before the end of the year, most of you will get a phone call. It could be a relative telling you that um, somebody in your family has passed away or maybe a colleague at work that calls you and tells you that a co-worker has died, and suddenly you're forced to consider the sacred ground at this end. Suddenly you're forced to that place that we don't like going to and we're uncomfortable thinking about, but because of death, and it's inevitable, we're forced to consider sacred ground again. And I want you to know that going to that place, sacred ground, on a regular basis, this may surprise you, can be one of the most strategic things a man can do. To contemplate life's end. Not because you're forced to do it, but because you choose to reflect on it and think about it. Our end is extremely important in impacting our present today. The most important thing an adventurer can do is contemplate his end. And in doing so, that contemplation becomes sacred ground. It was Stephen Covey who wrote in his book, Seven Habits. We talked about it last week. He said this, To begin with the end in mind means to start with a clear understanding of your destination. It means to know where you're going so that you can better understand where you are now and then to take steps that will move you in the right direction of your life. You see, contemplating sacred ground, our end, our death in eternity, a place we don't want to go, is the sacred ground of the mind. Envisioning our end has everything to do with how well and how or how poorly we live today in the present. It's so important, I want to say it again. Contemplating our end, our death, our eternity, because it's where every one of us in this room is headed. Every one of us. That is the sacred ground of the mind. How well we envision our end has everything to do with how we rightly or wrongly are oriented to life in the present. Now, I realize talking about death and about eternity is not what you got up this morning thinking, I'm looking forward to talk about. I want to hear about all of that. I mean, for some of you, just talking about it feels like a hard right turn uh, and if I were sitting where you were sitting, I would be thinking, what, what is he talking about? I, I, I want help with today. I mean, I want to survive today. I'm trying to survive work or home. I want to have a good family. I want to experience that family adventure we've, we've been talking about. I don't know if I want to think about the future 
out there. I, I mean, I want a better fit for today. I want to recapture some of that adventure I lost in my 20s or maybe my 30s. That's what I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about death and eternity. I want to think about what's important to me right now. But here's what I want you to know. How you think about your future will impact the present. It, it may shock you, the statement I'm going to make, but a real man, a guy who, whose life counts, a guy who's going to see success in life, will take the time to anticipate his death and the eternity that follows. He'll linger over sacred ground often until the present fits the end to which he's headed. Now, the truer, the better, the, the more realistic the fit with the present and the end, in other words, they are in agreement with one another, the more a life will make sense to, the, to that man. The more I'm in line with my end, the more invigorating your life will become, the more energy you're going to have. Uh, there's going to be greater satisfaction. There's greater anticipation about what's taking place in the future. As you move your way through life, you begin to determine my life fits. And so there is a sense of satisfaction in life. But on the other hand, the poorer the fit, the, out, the more out of line you are with your destination, you'll ultimately find yourself in an area of frustration. You will feel more and more like that Coke bottle I had up here last week. Remember that thing? I mean... You bump into someone's life and what spews out is anger, what spews out is frustration. You'll feel a sense of alienation and purposelessness and lostness. The poor, the fit with where you are now compared to your appointed end, the more diseased, diseased you will be with life. So if you're going to be an adventurer, what I want you to know is this, that the adventure is sacred oath. Oath is, I will fervently live my life according to my design with the end in mind. That's the adventurous sacred oath. Notice it takes in all three components we've talked about. The adventurous wiring, the past, the present, the future. I'll fervently live my life, that's the present, according to my design. That's looking at how you were designed in the past. And we'll be exploring that in January. With the end in mind, that's the future. And we're going to look at that in a very objective way over the next few weeks. So here's the question. How do I get a grip on the end of life? Well, I want to introduce you to what many of you may think is a very impractical subject because it's so abstract and it's a metaphysical subject. In fact, you remember... Two decades ago, the popular song came out that says, let's get physical. Well, this morning, we're going to get metaphysical together. So, to think about metaphysics, you need to think of it this way. Metaphysics is to life what peripheral vision is to sight. Metaphysics is to life what peripheral vision is to sight. It's the larger background behind the immediate foreground. In other words, you guys came here this morning, and the immediate foreground is you're taking notes, I'm presenting material, you're writing things down. But that's not all there is. There's a context to that. There's a metaphysical dimension to it because you need to pay attention in your peripheral vision, 
it has impact on what's going on that there are 70, 80 people here. 70, 80 people who got up at 5.30 or earlier this morning, drove in the dark to come here, not just to eat donuts, but in order to get material that will impact your life. Now, suddenly that puts context on not just why you're here, but why we're all here, and this must have impact. 70, 80 people can't be wrong. So that's the peripheral vision. I mean, think about great athletes. I mean, they not only see what's right in front of them, but great athletes, well, they have peripheral vision. I mean, they're running straight ahead and they see what's in front of them, but they also are picking up what's taking place at the side. If you don't have peripheral vision, what do you have? You have tunnel vision. And when you have tunnel vision, then you can't see the peripheral and you can't see the unexpected coming at you until it's too late. Great athletes have peripheral vision. Today, you'll go to work, and there'll be projects and goals you'll accomplish. And you won't just accomplish those in a vacuum. There is a peripheral vision to those goals. If you can understand their context, the why we're accomplishing them, and what it will do for the company, or do for my bottom line, or do for my paycheck, uh, or my bonus, that helps you with life. It's knowing the bigger picture behind the work. And It's the bigger picture behind life, the metaphysical picture, that whether you're aware of it or not, has impact on everything you do today. So what's the larger metaphysical backdrop that's behind everything we're doing in our lives today? Well, it might surprise you, but did you know there are only two metaphysical views of the world? Only two. So let's talk philosophically for a moment I'm going to put both views on the screen. The first is what we call the traditional religious view. It's the bigger backdrop behind the things we do. And we're going to paint some of that backdrop today. And then secondly is what I'd call the secular scientism worldview. Now, I use the word scientism for a reason. I didn't say scientific because that automatically pits religion against science. And that's really not what's going on in our world today. Science is the discipline of measuring this material world, that which you can see. It really, science tells us what is. But science moves into scientism when it holds that what we see is all there is. There's nothing more. You see the difference between the two? Science tells us what is, but scientism is saying that this material world is all that there is. There's nothing more than that. And there's um, a lot of talk about that in our world today. Now, we don't talk about it quite like I defined it, is science is what is, but scientism uh, says the world is all that there is. Uh, But today, science is so prevalent and influential that it is moving us to think more and more that this world is all there is. There's nothing more. And so we put our faith in science, and when we do, it becomes like a religion, and then it becomes scientism because nothing else exists out there, just this physical world. But there are a growing number of scientists that wouldn't agree with that, that this world is all there is. In fact, Dr. Arthur Peacock respected molecular biologist from Oxford, England, says this, In my youth, I was an agnostic. 
But as I did research, I was terribly impressed that the universe really was intelligible. So why does nature always turn out to be more intellectually coherent than anything we can conceive before we do the studies? I now believe that the universe is rational because there is a super-rational being behind it. What he is saying there is that every design presupposes a designer. Just like every watch presupposes a watchmaker. I mean, the universe is this extremely intricate design, so it must presuppose a masterful designer. In fact, as scientists explore the universe on a, on a micro and macro level, they are amazed. No matter where they look, they see design everywhere, especially on the micro level as we've explored deeper and deeper into a molecule and into atoms. We see more and more intricate design which points to a designer. I mean, if you were to look at an architectural structure, a beautiful building, I mean, you can't help it. Your mind automatically at some point goes to who's the architect? Who thought of this? See, every design presupposes some kind of designer. If this world is a magnificent design, what does that say about the designer? What can we learn from him? So if the design blows your mind, the designer must be out of this world. Uh, so we yeah, have only really two views. There is the uh, traditional religious view, the secular scientism view, and that's all there is, just those two views. The secular scientism view says this world, the physical world, is all there is. So we're going to explore these two views just briefly this morning. And I know I'm pulling you into a philosophical discussion, but you need to know that there are just two views. These are the two views, only two so when on the adventurous wire, wiring, you end up down here at your death, you'll end up in one place or the other, on the right side of this chart or on the left side. It's the only two options you've got. So let's look at them in detail. For instance, the traditional religious view says, number one, uh, human beings are the less deserved from the more. We're the offspring of divine glory. We are, as our Constitution says, created. Now, that's a big assumption, but that's that particular view. The secular scientism view says human beings are the more who have been derived from the less. That should be more. Yeah, that's right. Are the more derived from the less. In other words, nothing in the universe is more intelligent than us. That's the viewpoint. We're a, a magnificent accident, a random chance that evolved from less complex to more complex. Now, secondly, the religious view says that assumes that you can... what. What we can see and measure is secondary to what we cannot see. Remember, science moved into, moves into scientism when it says that what we see is all there is. On the other hand, the religious view says, no, that it's not all there is. What you see is only part of what there is. 
In fact, what we're talking about here is exactly what the Apostle Paul communicated to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4.18. He said, While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now that verse really Paul parts the curtain on the larger metaphysical backdrop of life. There's something out there that's not seen. On the other hand, the secular uh, scientism view assumes that what we see and measure is primary, if not exclusive, to any other reality. Matter is all there is. Now, thirdly, the traditional religious view allows for the fulfillment of one of the strongest desires and anticipations of the human heart. I mean, Solomon talked about that in the book of Ecclesiastes, where he said, God has set eternity in our hearts. There's a desire in a man for something beyond him, for an eternity, something bigger than him in the world. And although we live in a physical world where we're bound by gravity, there's something in us that feels like there's got to be something beyond us out there, bigger than us. And you see that in every culture from the beginning of history. I mean, is it just a product of chance, or is that pointing to something else? That's the question. In fact, I love what C.S. Lewis says about it in Mere Christianity. He says this, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is something There is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. A man feels sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy That doesn't prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. See, I have a desire for eternity points to an eternity that must be there. Elsewise, I wouldn't have the desire. On the other hand, the secular scientism view denies the fulfillment of the human, human heart's eternal longing. In other words, death is just the grim reaper. You die, you become worm food, that's all. Nothing more. Nothing optimistic. That's it. In fact, one scientist, Dr. Steven Weinberg, a physicist at the University of Texas, put it this way. It's pretty succinct. The more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it seems pointless. Life has no happy ending. Life just has an ending. Bang. That's the worm food view. And then fourth, the traditional view points to a meaningful continuance to our lives after death and to those who believe a happy continuance. In other words, we believe there is an end. We feel like there's got to be an end where there's some kind of truth and justice that come together. There's some kind of reward and punishment. I mean, as you live life, you're forced to ask the question, who's going to get even for all the horror we see going on around us here? 
how is that going to be reconciled? There's something in the heart that longs for a place where all the tragedy of the world is wrapped up and finalized. And the traditional view says that there will be such a place in the future. On the other hand, the secular worldview points to a, a meaningless end to our lives and death. But if life doesn't have a meaningful continuance, then Macbeth must have been right. Life is a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. Did you know both of these worldviews have a common embrace? The traditional worldview requires faith. The secular worldview requires faith. Both have a common embrace of faith. So you're headed in one of those two views with your life. I mean, they're mutually exclusive. You really can't combine them. doesn't mean we don't try, but you can't combine them. They're mutually exclusive. And because we don't like lingering over sacred ground, you know what we do? We just kind of mush them together. And you see that happen all the time. I mean, there are a lot of people today who believe that this end is all there is, and then, then it's over. You become worm food. And then they turn right around and they are a great component of faithfulness and honor and virtue. Virtue, virtue. you think about that. I mean, it's not logical to mix the two. I mean, where does that come from? Uh, they really don't mix, do they? Uh, because nothing, if life is nothing more than a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing, then the Apostle Paul was right when he says that if there is no God, then we should eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. In other words, there's nothing compelling us to be faithful or truthful. So here you got a man who's looking toward his end, and what he decides about that end will be the backdrop. It'll be the peripheral vision behind everything, the why behind the decisions you make every day. If you feel like there's an end... Uh, like the end is the end, there's nothing more, then here's the question. What prevents you from having an affair today? What prevents you from um, writing a check for more that's in your bank account? What prevents you from stealing money from a friend because he has more than you? Or from somebody who has less than you just because you want their money? What prevents you from doing all that? I mean, where, where does the rightness and wrongness come from in the world? I mean, who does it come from? You see, whether I'm aware of it or not, my peripheral vision impacts the way I feel. And it has impact on the decisions I make every day. Uh, on the other hand, if you believe that you're headed to an end that has meaning, that there's reckoning and reconciliation, your peripheral vision will impact the decisions you make in the present right now. Uh, and you won't have that affair. Because there's something bigger in life that's going on. You won't steal that money because there's something bigger in life that's going on. You don't want to ignore that. And it tells you there's something in life that's more than just the immediate. And so that faithfulness that you have to your wife, even though it's hard in the moment, I mean, it becomes important. That's the peripheral vision of your life. That's taking it all in, the backdrop that affects the foreground. It's your focus. It affects your focus that you have today. So the question is, which of these two views align itself with what we know about life? I think that is the question, with what we feel and perceive about life. 
I want you to know that everything in life, everything you experience in life pulls you toward the former, the religious worldview, rather than the latter. There's something in every man that concludes there's got to be something more to this life. I mean, we have to work that out of our us, but it's naturally there. And a lot of seculars have worked that out of their lives. There's something that says that when it's over, it just can't be over. There's got to be something more. There's something in us that dreams about something to the future. Remember what C.S. Lewis said? If there's a desire within us that is not fulfilled, maybe it's not meant to be fulfilled here, but it points, it arouses, it's been aroused to point to another time and place. Maybe that's what it's pointing to. Our desires, I think, are there because they will be fulfilled. So there are only two metaphysical views to life. Uh, But those two views, gentlemen, give us four logical choices. Four choices. You guys remember, some of you old enough to remember, the cartoons in the 60s, 70s, maybe even 80s. At the end, there'd be Porky Pig. He'd come on. He'd go, uh, you know, but, 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 but that's all, folks. Some of you that old, you can remember that? Well, that's, that's the first choice. It's called, that's all, folks. We finish, and we're finished. I'd call that the dead-end option. When life is over, it's finished. We become worm food. But that viewpoint cultivates greater and greater self-focus, doesn't it? A selfishness, because there's nothing bigger to live for than yourself. The second option, uh, we come to uh, the conclusion that life is over. When life is over, it's not the end, but everything will be okay. Now, I can't tell you why it's going to be okay. I'd call that the blind optimist approach. And you hear about that blind optimism all the time. You see it on TV. You have some drug craze. Rock star take an overdose and he dies. And one of his buddies is coming out of the funeral and entertainment tonight, sticks a mic in his face and he says, Yeah, oh, so and so, he's playing in that big rock band in the sky. He's having a great time. And I want to jump out of my chair going, How do you know? How do you know it ends like that? How do you know there's a big rock band in the sky? Well, that's just blind optimism. See, blind optimism says it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you do. Everything's just going to be okay in the end. There's a third option. When life is over, it's not the end, but I'll be okay. And I'd call that I am good enough approach or I'm good enough option. No, it's a little different. That's a person who's looking at life and comparing it to others. I'm good enough. I'm better than him. I'm confident I'm going to make it. Time Magazine did a survey a few years ago and asked people, do they believe in a literal hell? And uh, 80% of people said, yes, they did. Then they asked them, do they think they'll be there? 95% said no. But when they asked them about their friends, they were significantly less optimistic. I mean, 
I don't know about you. I mean, I'm going to be okay, but I don't know about you. I've been watching your life. I mean, I'm concerned about you, but I'm going to be okay. That's what we're talking about. Here's what I want you to know. If you don't feel okay, all the major religions of the world will help you feel okay about life, except one. One is different. Uh, They'll give you things to do so you can be okay. And if you do enough of those things, you'll be better. And if you end up being better enough, then that's going to be okay, except no one knows exactly where that level is, that line is. Now, there is one that doesn't say that you're going to be okay. One religion says no matter what you do, you're not going to be good enough, which brings us to that last option. The last option is when life is over, It's not the end, but I'm uncertain and uneasy. It's the I need help option. This view says as we look at life ourselves and we look at the end, no matter how good we think we are, we're still uneasy about our future, especially when we think of God, we think of eternity, and reconciliation and judgment. It makes us uncertain and uneasy. But if we could get some help, we sure would be interested. We would be interested in having some help because we don't think we're good enough. Now, that's the option that Christianity fits into, and it's what separates Christianity from all the other world religions. Do you know what most men think the end of Christianity is? They think you're going to get white robes they are going to have wings attached to it so you'll be able to fly. You're going to sit on a cloud playing a harp, listening to choir music 24-7. That's most men's view about eternity. I mean, nothing could be more boring to a man's vision. I mean, why would I want to go there? Send me to hell where there's a good football game or something. But that's the way most people think about eternity, and it's false. Now, here's what I want you to know. The Scripture paints a much different picture of eternity in heaven, and that's what we're going to explore the next week. And here's why we're going here, guys. As a pastor, sometimes I get pulled into people's lives that haven't seriously considered their end. They've never contemplated the sacred ground other than when they go to a funeral and they dismiss it immediately after they walk out of the door. And then suddenly, with one medical diagnosis, that man is forced to have to contemplate sacred ground. And they haven't prepared for that moment. They haven't thought about it. There's no fit with the end because they didn't spend time there thinking about that sacred ground. So they move into that moment and, guys, hear me. They move into that moment, and I've never seen it otherwise. They move into it with regret. They wish they had done things differently. A real man will contemplate his end because the better the fit with the end and the present. The better the fit, the end and the present, the more satisfied, uh, the more energy he has, the more fulfilled he has. That sacred ground, gentlemen, is your peripheral vision. And I promise you it's affecting everything you do today. So we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at the sacred ground. And then we're going to work ourselves back through the chart, and you'll see how significant this time will be as you consider 
your present and the past. So I want to wrap it up with just a couple final thoughts. Letter A reminds us that an adventurer always lives with the end in mind. I'm going to keep saying that. The end is where we rarely go because we feel uncomfortable looking at the end, but I want to force us to go there. I don't want your only um, time of reflecting on the end to be a funeral. It's got to come before that. The adventurer always lives with the end in mind. Only with a clear, decisive view of the end can you, can we do several things. There are three of them. Pursue a life with a balanced and healthy perspective. Second, leave behind a satisfying legacy. And third, be ready and confident about our eternity. That's what the end helps you consider. That's the fit it gives you. Balanced and healthy perspective. Leaving behind a satisfying legacy. Be ready and confident about eternity. And then secondly, I want you to know that man has never done well when his belief goes no further than his own life. All you got to do is look at history. In fact, Will Durant, who has written an entire, who spent his entire life studying history, has written an eleven-volume set called "The Story of Civilization." Um, when he came to the end of his life, before he died, he decided to take everything he had learned and put it in a small little volume, Ten Lessons I've Learned from History. And in one of those lessons, he said this, Mankind has never risen above his religion. And when he doesn't have religion, he doesn't do well. And we've seen that lived out. You've seen that lived out. In communism that has extracted religion or God from the equation. Man never does well when he, but his beliefs go no further than his own life. And then thirdly, we all need to realize that avoiding conclusions about the end is essentially a vote for the not only. The now only. Not the not only. The now only. I mean, you, you can sit there and say, I don't like thinking about this. I mean, we're talking about abstract, future, metaphysical thought. That's painful. I, I mean, I understand, but I want you to know, if you avoid conclusions about the end, then that's a vote. It's a vote for the now only lifestyle. All that matters is the here and now. I'm going to leave, live for the immediate. I'm going to focus on what's in front of me. And I counsel guys that have that perspective all the time. And it always ends in dead ends of frustration and unnecessary fear and regret. Always. And then lastly, if there's more to this life than death, we should do all we can to understand what's next. I think you'd agree with that. If there is more to this life and death, then we need to do what we can to understand what's next. And we're going to spend just a brief amount of time looking at that, and I think you're going to find it can energize your present and give you a bigger perspective than you ever imagined. So I realize I've got a little philosophical with you today. And uh, for some of you, that is a hard right turn, but I think it's where we need to go to investigate this end of the chart and then move our way back through. And I think it will begin 
you'll begin to feel the gravity of it all as we move through. So, uh, for you guys who um, need to get in a group, uh, come up and see me, and I'll make sure you get in one. For the rest of you, a break for your groups. I, I really think that's one of the most valuable times, so please don't skip out on that. And we'll see you back next week.